Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Uh, winter is over. It's time to come out of hibernation and into sunnier days. And with the spring in our step, there is plenty to look forward to in the months ahead. The culture calendar is buzzing with activity, and today we're going to sift through and find the bright spots. Well, within reason. Whether you're keen to venture out and about or prefer to hunker down in the comfort of your own home, we've got you covered. And don't worry, you won't have to rely on my word alone. Here to point us in the direction of the most exciting art exhibitions on offer in the coming weeks and months is Ossian Ward, Head of Content at the Listen Gallery. And if books are your bag, the cultural and literary critic Mia Levitin is here to tell us which page turners are worth picking up. Welcome, Mia and Ossian. Um, it's lovely to have you in the studio. It's been a while since we've been live in person. Lovely to have you here. Lovely and welcome, to be here. welcome Thank for the you. first time, Mia, in person. Ossian's an old hand. <laughs> I, I, I don't like previewing things. It's like seeing talking about things you haven't seen, but I'll try. It'll be fine. We can talk. We're going to talk about before. reputation. We're going to. Get, well, I know where we're going with yeah. you. We've both we've both dipped our toes in those before. Venetian waters, so it's fine. True. But we're going to start with Mia, and we talked about finding the bright spots, Mia. But anyway, you can lead us a merry dance, possibly through your first choice, which is something new from Haley Campbell. Yes. So Haley Campbell has written a book called All the Living and the Dead. It is published by Raven Books, which is a crime imprint, but it's a nonfiction book in which Campbell meets death workers, which doesn't sound very lively for spring. <laughs> I, like, I like where we're starting. Yes. It's However, yeah. you know, it's filled with gallows humor. And I have to say, you know, she starts with an epigraph from James Baldwin, which is that death is the only fact we have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in meeting with these, these people, you know, embalmers, people who make death masks, a crime scene cleanup crew, you know, she really gets involved, not only interviews them, it's great reportage, but also kind of deals with the bodies. And she comes out of it not depressed, but really feeling a vitality. And I think, you know, coming out of the pandemic, coming into spring, it's useful to kind of engage with these topics. So yeah. um, besides the kind of memento mori aspect, it's true that in the West today, we really don't face death as opposed to other cultures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I lost my father, I was really unprepared for it as opposed to other things in my life, such as childbirth, where I would have read and read and my friends would have talked about it. So I think it's, you know, really useful if you're not brave like she is yeah. <laughs> to go to actually do an embalming to at least read about it. I think it's very, very transformative. She's a wonderful journalist with a great kind of tone of voice. She throws herself into her her stories and obviously, this, I mean, with this, you said she sort of gets her hands sort of dirty with this sort of subject matter. It does seem to be, I mean, a necessary gallows humour to these, to these sorts of professions, right? I mean, I'm thinking in the art world of that wonderful picture of Damien Hurst with the head when he was a student um, in Leeds and all the rest of it. There is this necessary gallows humour to working in, as you say, the death industry, right? Is that what, something that she sort of teases out? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things she set out to do is really to see who these people were and how they coped with it. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you know, the humor is an important part of it. And there's this kind of interesting mix between distancing yourself from the bodies and yet a very moving humanity that comes through. Mm-hmm. One moment that really touched me was there were two men working at the crematorium who would sit in funerals if no mourners showed up, just so people wouldn't be unmourned. Oh, wow, that's quite a thing. Is that, I mean, is that part of taking on that job? I suppose it. It kind of is, or is it just was it just their unique kind of way of marking? It's just marking doing the, the right the thing. Ceremony. Yeah. yeah, as she says, it's the stories of people doing the good and right thing, 
even though no one will notice. Yeah. You know, and I think that's part of it, too, is with kind of highlighting these industries. It's so hidden. You know, you maybe deal with a funeral director, but, of course, you're not never seeing the people behind the scenes. And whereas in ancient cultures, in Egypt, for example, it was very revered. Yeah, exactly. When you think of, I mean, you obviously think of something wonderful like uh, Tutankhamun, and the grandeur. Also, just, you know, in, in any grand church, the mausoleums that families have and all the rest of it, the celebration of death, I suppose, went hand in hand with faith. You can't write a book like this without musing on some sort of faith, I suppose. Or does she does she sidestep that? What she <clears> says <throat> is that actually funeral directors have become the new clergy. Because mm-hmm. as we've lost that kind of religious element of society, they take on the bereavement counseling that they didn't used to have to do. And she says more and more women are entering the industry, which kind of comes with um, an element of care. It used to be quite mm-hmm. macho. So I think that's interesting, too, that, you know, as time goes by, the industry itself kind of matches our needs in these moments. But I like I re- the idea of macho funeral directors. That feels definitely like... I'm kind of getting... In my head, I've got, like, sitcom territory here some, right. somehow, right? But you're right. And the introduction or women coming into that realm brings probably necessarily a different sort of sensitivity, I suppose. Right? Yes. How touching that the kind of two guys at the back of a crematorium mourning someone they never knew in order for there to be someone to witness the... The ritual, I suppose. I love that idea. How lovely that is. And the reverence, right? Yeah. I mean, the kind of respect that these people have day in, day out that are doing this job and see so many deaths and yet still kind of show up to respect yeah. respect the dead. Do you remember that Taryn Simon performance piece done by Art Angel where she hired lots of mm. mourners or, or singers who do mourning songs or who are... Yeah. made to accompany funerals and she had them placed all over the this building i think it was also in the armory in new york sort of like a you know huge expanse of people and you wandered around hearing a mexican song or a kind of israeli wail yeah wow. and and these people so are, ritualized mourning yeah but yeah. there's an industry as well you know yeah. people are paid to allulate or whatever yeah. at a funeral just to kind of i don't know partly ritual partly to kind of keep the atmosphere up and yeah keep, that's fascinating up. isn't it yeah it's an industry it's a job as well as yeah. as well as being something faith-based that's a fascinating place to start uh, mia's first choice was all the living and the dead by Haley campbell that's out on the 31st of march ossian lovely to have you back in the studio you're taking us to venice thank you first. death in venice <laughs> yeah no i mean I, I think um the show that i probably will talk about most is this uh one that we've been working on with anish kapoor mm-hmm. one of the galleries at listen gallery but Venice, we used to come by with this kind of metronomic regularity. You know, you could set your watch by it, and now we don't know what year we're in. Has it been delayed, or you know, maybe it has? Is I it guess. like the Olympics? Is all the merchandise got twenty twenty three written on it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, <laughs> we're calling it last year's. I think it was delayed from last year. Yeah. The main curator, Cecilia Alemani, who has been doing the High Line and curating great shows, has decided to just have women artists, and perhaps there's a sort of political point to make with that. And I'm sure there will be, you know, a sort of political point that, you know, these writing wrongs perhaps over the pandemic that will be visible throughout the, the different shows. But because there's so many hundreds of different presentations and nations taking part, I thought I would discuss the Anish Kapoor. And it's a dual presentation. So he's taking over the Grand Dam or whatever the Italian equivalent is mm-hmm. of the museums, the Academia. So, you know, all that amazing collection that they have there and the other part is that on Canareggio in Palazzo Manfrin so he's taking over two huge yeah, spaces huge. actually I mean he's yeah. I mean obviously he's a he's an artist who 
can do big very well. Has yeah, done. has done, will always <clears throat> do. But <clears throat> so that, there are large works that's going to be in the courtyard. There'll be a big sort of large inflatable work that will sort of take over the entire space and sort of not almost let you through. And I think you'll be greeted, I don't know how much to give away, by <laughs> essentially a kind of inverted mountain as you come into one of the spaces, which wow. will be covered in sort of resin and guts and glory type paint, which will sort of bifurcate the space, feel like kind of like an upside down cathedral or something has been plonked into the space. So there will be some real wow moments and some big moments. Big theatre. But it'll also be a kind of retrospective going back to the 80s, going back even to the 70s to these early pigment works, all the way forward to this latest series of black works where the this pigment is this... Is this this Vantablack? Yeah, this yeah. is the nanotube technology, so the, the yeah. blackest black where there is absolutely no... The spinal tap black. <laughs> yeah, but turn it up to 11. <laughs> yeah. No, there's absolutely no visible shade or light within the material, a bit like your your jumper, actually. You know, it's kind of a void. I always like to dress on point for <laughs> any... Or any of me as book choices. The, the deep, yes. <laughs> Very dark. The deepest void possibly known to man, <laughs> a.k.a. Rob's jumper. But... It's quite an amazing effect because obviously you you come to the work and you see it looking flat in this vitrine and the vitrines are there because the material is susceptible to damage. It's a very unstable material. And then as you turn, you see the shape coming out of this blackness uh, sort of, you know, appearing as if from nowhere. So that's the first time these works will have been seen. But then there's lots of other works by Kapoor in between the famous mirror works that we're kind of you know, familiar with where where you're inverted yeah. in, in the work or your sort of your body is taken into this different kind of void, you know, a, a shimmering reflective void, and then you're flipped upside down or turned around uh, within the space. And that, com- you know, combined with the effect of the palazzos, the historic... That's um, going to look absolutely stunning. But you also wanted to mention, I mean, we'll have to do him very quickly, I'm afraid, due, yeah. to, due to time... You, there's a bit of colleague Stanley Whitney, who's yes. who's in a similar world in certain respects to, to Anish, but very colourful. Yeah. That's true. That's the other exhibition that the gallery's been working on um, uh, in association with um, a museum, and it's earlier works by Stanley. And I think he's always maintained a studio in Italy, so there's a kind of sense that these are his Italian paintings, but. He's a lovely man, black guy, you know, has lived his whole life in Harlem, has spent the whole time painting these amazing sort of architectural squares and units which he stacks up with lines and colours. And he's been repeating that formula for, yeah. you know, He's somewhere between kind of like Joseph Elbers and Howard Hodgkin. You know, he's got that beautiful... He's got such a lovely touch, right? But it's, yeah. It's and the, not mathematical like Elders. N- no, there's n- there's no straight lines and there's no straight colours, if you like. Yeah. Everything is kind of mixed and changed on the surface. It's very freeform. It sounds like a rigid structure, but it's not. I mean, he, he feels that every painting... In fact, they're paintings within a painting because each section has its own life. He really looks at Renaissance painting, for example, as you know, where he gets his light and his colour from, and probably also Italy and, and, you know, Rome, where he's had the studio as being very influential for those works. But, yeah, that's a sort of flip of the coin for that show. It'll be very beautiful, light-filled, also historic palazzo. You know, the usual Venice stuff. 
That was Ossian's selection. It was largely and specifically things from the Venice Biennale. That's on from uh, mid-April all the way to the end of November. It's nice in the summer, but it's nicer in the autumn, isn't it? True. Yeah. Talking of none more black and Vanta Black and Anish Kapoor's sort of depthless darkness, we're coming back to Mia Levitin. What's your second choice, Mia? And are we going to the sunny uplands? Not quite yet, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so... As I mentioned before, I think there's this kind of need for collective catharsis, and there are a handful of grief memoirs coming out this spring, among which This Is Not a Pity Memoir by Abby Morgan, Clover Stroud's The Red of My Blood, and Amy Bloom's In Love. But the one I wanted to talk about is by David Whitehouse, and it's called About a Son, and it's out from an imprint of Orion called Phoenix, who publish stories that make their mark. And I have to say that this book is like nothing I've ever read before. It's told in the second person, which is, you know, addressed to Mm -hmm. you. And that is extraordinarily rare to find in a full-length book. It's often used in short stories because it kind of brings you in, but it's quite uncomfortable for the length of a book. Mohsen Hamid used it very effectively in The Reluctant Fundamentalist. But I've never seen it in a memoir before. Actually, Abby Morgan uses it, but she's addressing her husband. And in this case, it's David Whitehouse who's addressing... Colin Hare, who lost his son to a knife crime. And so it's an extraordinary story about how it came to be because Colin Hare is, you know, a truck driver from Nuneaton who, you know, tragically lost his son on Halloween 2015. And he kept a diary of everything that happened after that. And then kind of to his credit, tried to figure out how to get it published, whether he should self-publish and kind of got connected with David Whitehouse, who's a novelist and a journalist, but who is from Nuneaton himself. And the effect of these sort of short, sharp sentences told in the second person really puts you in his shoes. So this all about the sort of fallout from this crime and the, this all about the grief, or is it about the crime itself as well? Is, it, is, it, is there a sort of certain amount of being put in the shoes of the victim? So it's billed as kind of part memoir, part true crime, And, you know, I'd say about a third of it is really, like, the grief and the immediate aftermath of that, um, again, told very viscerally. And then about two-thirds is about the trial. And, you know, I'm not sure why I expected this. Perhaps it's my American optimism, which, you know, perhaps are my choices you can't (laughs) really (laughs) ascertain. (laughs) But I, for some reason, I was expecting a redemption narrative. And I thought maybe, you know, he would kind of there would be like this big forgiveness moment where he meets his son's murderer and, you know, they cry and they hug. And actually, you do not get that at all. There is no redemption whatsoever. He kind of goes... Welcome to Britain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it. You know, I, I can't, can't judge him for that, but it's quite um, intense because he kind of goes through why his son's murderer should have never been on the street. You know, all the kind of police mess-ups. He'd been imprisoned mm-hmm. before he was convicted of manslaughter at 15 and, um, you know, had had other offenses in between. And so there's no relief, there's no justice, there's no kind of, as as there wouldn't be in life, right? I yeah. Mean, there's kind of a fake ending to any grief memoir, right? Because grief continues. So is this, you know, aside from the personal nature of and importance of the subject matter, um, is this a work of style? I mean, this second person, I kind of love the idea of that. And that is difficult to sustain over the over the length of a, well, of a novel, I know this isn't, but you know, the sort of three hundred page mark. Does this feel like a work of style when you're reading it? It's very immersive. It's very, yeah. it's very as I said, visceral. It's kind of a gut punch. So every mm. because of these short sentences where it's addressed to you, you feel really pulled in. Mm. And interestingly, White House also kind of addresses Colin from the future. So you won't know this yet, but 
You will eventually do this. And so engrossed in. Yeah. It's, It's very unique. And this, I've read that this has been optioned for a TV series already. I'm not surprised. And I wonder how, but you know, in terms of the start of it, that second person, I feel like there's gonna, there has to be lots of voiceover in this in order for it to make any sense other than it just be the story of what happened. You know what I mean? And for it to inhabit the style of David Whitehouse's book. Yeah, I wonder how they'll do that. Well, interestingly, he has another book coming out. Uh, I think it's like about the last year of Morgan's life, which, again, to me... Offhand doesn't sound like it would be interesting. You know, twenty-year-old's life with his football and his music and his graffiti. Like to me, that doesn't sound in and of itself interesting. Mm. But I trust him to make it so. Yeah. You know, and so I wonder how much of the it'd be really interesting to see what they do with the TV. How true crime it gets, right? Yeah, like, right. How much they dramatize the police aspect of it. Well, that uh, is beautifully described. Uh, that is about a son by David Whitehouse, and that's published by Phoenix on the twenty-eighth of April. Austin, we're coming back to you. We're staying in Italy. Sunshine. <laughs> uh, Steve McQueen. Yeah. Love him. Yeah. Love his work, literally. Yeah. So this okay. is a new exhibition called Sun- Sunshine State. Oh, Han- great. It's called something nice as I well. I told you. You made me a smile, too. At the Hangar Bicocca in Milan, which is this enormous hangar like space. It's Vicente Todoli, who okay. was the curator of Tate Modern. I've interviewed Tate him. He's, a, he's got a citrus farm in Valencia. He does. I want to go he's there. He's amazing. And he's, I love him. He's great. I need to go there because anyway. You need some lemon. You think of making lemon tonics? I need some citrus. Vicente, jolly nice chap, but he's he's curated it. I think the first part was really Tate Modern, so I don't know if any of you saw that. That was a stunning thing. Stunning thing, you know, and uh, an amazing installation. This will be bolstered by a new work, which is called Sunshine State, if I can get it out. And actually, there's not that much information about what it is, but it's a new film that he's been working on or thinking about for a long time which they talk about as being about the beginnings of Hollywood cinema and the influence that it's had on the perception of issues of identity. So make of that what you will, but you know, using that huge space will kind of transform that exhibition again. So a lot of the other works that were in that uh, previous show, so one of my favourites is that Western Deep where it's about the miners and you're going mm. down the, the lift shaft. I mean, it's essentially just a, a film of the... Uh, what it would look like and feel like to be in that lift shaft going down, 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 deeper and deeper. And I can imagine that on a on a bigger scale, even than Tate Modern, you know, could be pretty impressive. I mean, that's an amazing thing. There's so many, you know, there are, I'm thinking about that wonderful work, which is the kind of helicopter shot of the Statue of Liberty, yeah. where you, it's such a, it's such a vertiginous kind of piece. And that would work so well in a larger, that was done, that was, that was, that was hung yeah. well. Uh, Tate Modern, but I'd love to see that in a bigger space. Yeah, the piece is static from 2009. And yeah, I can't imagine what it would look like bigger. Whether there is a need. Maybe you look down on it, or maybe you look up at it, I don't know. Yeah, and I think that's what's quite amazing about these two exhibitions, is the sort of the scene setting and the installation is different from you would get in a normal show. Mm. And that speaks also of Steve McQueen's kind of I I don't like to compartmentalise, but you know, obviously we know him as an Oscar-winning filmmaker now, and whether he does himself, I know he, he likes to take himself very seriously in the film sphere and in the art sphere, and I don't know whether he compartmentalises them because there's a lot of artists making feature films nowadays. We have one on our list, Garrett Bradley, who's making films but also making installations. So, you know, what's the difference between those two um, endeavours? Is it multi-screen format? Is it the size? Is it the scale? Is it the narrative? You know, how do we kind of differentiate between them? 
I don't know whether that's fair to say that these artists do compartmentalise. I think or, he does. I've interviewed him, and, and uh, he's he wants kind of, to be seen differently. Yeah, it's different. like I'm I'm a different person today because yeah. I'm making a film kind of thing. I'm not. I'm not. It doesn't matter about his art practice. I think when he's doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's fair. I I, I also think that you know that the other suggestion is that once you start making these big Hollywood films and becoming a film director, that you won't do the art anymore, or you won't you know yeah. concentrate on that anymore, and maybe with this new uh, film we'll see that that's not true and also these installations we'll see that that's not true that is steve mcqueen at hangar bicocha i'm calling it bicocha and that is on from the 31st of march to the 31st of july is that in turin no it's in milan Milan. it's in milan did you just do a nice i thought you were gonna call it milan or i thought you were going i was going there you were going there weren't you i could tell by the, <laughs> end, the way you sort of said it don't worry torino i've got very sharp ears thanks Ossian. now we come back to mia who has taking us slightly more into the sunshine state. Yes, so finally something a little lighter. Okay. Um, I could not be more excited about a book than Elif Batuman's Either Or, which is coming out from Jonathan Cape on the 26th of May. It is a sequel to The Idiot, which came out in 2017, mm-hmm. which was one of those books where I just wanted to keep going. So what an absolute joy to have her take up, you know, pick up exactly where she left off. Her protagonist was in her freshman year at Harvard in the mid-90s in The Idiot, and now, you know, we're sophomore year. Um, She just captures that time of life and that time, that era, so perfectly with her kind of unmatched deadpan wit. It's a very (laughs) funny book. So I'll just give a very brief preface of the novel, a novel in which a Harvard undergrad ponders the merits of the aesthetic versus the ethical life while reading Kierkegaard. Yeah, so that sounds very (laughs) weighty. I don't know if you're familiar with Lardy-da, but we... (laughs) Well, she lied to herself. She sounds great. I mean, I, I love the idea of that. And yeah, you're right. The idiot was a masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, as yeah. she writes herself, most college students, as she does in the book, skip right to the section called The Diary of a Seducer. Mm. So, you know, either or kind of considers the ethical versus the aesthetic life. And, you know, everybody skips those bits and goes right to the seduction story. And she kind of lives the seduction story in its way because... Some critics complained that the idiot was very chaste. So she stays a virgin her freshman year. She has an unrequited crush on a guy called Ivan. And we pick up, she's still into Ivan, but kind of decides that she's not waiting around for him anymore. And, you know, wants to have interesting experiences in this aesthetic way. But it can be quite uncomfortable to read. So it's not, you know, they're not great sexual experiences, but she's almost after it for the experience. And... It's really interesting because kind of read from a post-Me Too lens, it's almost would be considered assault. But she doesn't use those words and she's won't victimize her mm-hmm. because, you know, she's... Does it I work said, better because it's in the 90s? Does that sort of make her... I still don't think we have the right language for it, for those yeah. situations at that age. But I think it works better because you don't have to be... You don't have to know what's happened afterwards. Exactly. Kind of thing. You yeah. don't have to label it. Yeah. Um, so I think it works really well. And... You know, kind of the nicest moment is, is her first kiss, which she describes as slow and easy and endless and immediate. She just thought was such a lovely description. That sounds description. good. Everyone's kind of staring off in the studio here, remembering theirs. Right. Their, spring, <laughs> their springtime yeah. Uh, blossoming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is, this is, thanks for taking us to the Sunshine State. Yeah. yeah. But the other interesting thing she does is really, you know, we don't remember it now, but just how email felt at the beginning. Mm. It's like communicating with a ghost in the machine and even... You know, there was a command called finger, which was to see where somebody was when they last logged in. And the Really? Yeah. 
Okay. And on yeah. Unix, you had a talk command, which is a bit like instant messaging. And she writes about how you could see each other typing and thinking and backspacing, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it really did feel like a kind of magic at the beginning. And so mm. now, you know, we're so anesthetized to it with text messaging, but I love how she's managed to capture it. She did write, at least the idiot she did, quite soon after she graduated, and then it was in a drawer for many years. So it really, I'm not surprised that she managed to nail that period of time in a way that I don't think you could remember. In terms of the style, is, are we in the world for our listeners of, you know, we talked about David Whitehouse's thing being the second person. This has got, she's got a very kind of controlled style, right? I mean, as you say, this deadpan humour and stuff. What's the tone of voice like? How does she appear on the page? She's very aware of her own... Are we going to have an excerpt? We are. Okay. She's very aware of her own, you know, as you said, like, She's aware of how she sounds, right? She's a yeah. literature student, uh, reading Kierkegaard and... Pondering the merits of the aesthetic versus the ethical life while reading Kierkegaard, you mean? Exactly. Okay. And <laughs> she kind of pokes fun at herself. There is that awareness of it. And I love how she kind of... She captures not only the beginnings of email communication, but also unrequited love, which I think to her is very important. I mean, on her website, she kind of mentions that there are years of her life where she didn't get much work done because she was trying to have romantic experiences, which I think is really interesting for somebody that accomplished to kind of admit um, that women kind of get stuck in this situation. And, and she links to Shulamith Firestone, who writes, to be in love can be a full-time job for a woman, like that of a profession for a man. Yeah, right. You okay. Know? All-encompassing. Exactly. So, um, sorry, I just wanted to read an excerpt. Yeah, let's have a little bit. By the way, it's great to see a literary critic's copy of an as-yet-published as book. There are approximately, I'd have said, 120 small post-it notes sticking out of that. Yeah, well, I have a distinct advantage that I get to have read what I'm talking about as opposed to the exhibitions where you have to just kind of take a guess. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah. It's going to be big, it's going to be blue, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, so to this point about her sort of romantic ponderings, the other book that comes up a lot is um, Breton's Nadia, which, you know, asks, Qui uh, who am I? In its simplest form, the aesthetic life involves seducing and abandoning young girls and making them go crazy. This is what I had learned from books. There was a problem of application. What did you do if you were a young girl? Nadia had been a girl and had tried to live an aesthetic life. That had involved her being seduced and abandoned and going crazy. But that had been then. What were you supposed to do now? Seduce and abandon men? Was that what feminism had made possible? Something about the idea didn't feel aesthetic. Just think of the angry, complaining men. Maybe you, too, were supposed to be seducing and abandoning young girls. Was that what feminism had made possible? But what would you do with the young girls? And wouldn't it put you in a losing competition against men? It's good. Yeah, it's good. I like the sort of binary nature of those choices she's making. Right. right. You, too, sounds kind of good as well, like that. That's beautiful. So that is Either Or, new from Elif uh, Batcherman, and that is published by Jonathan Cape on the 26th of May. Thank you, Mia Leverton. Austin, we're heading back to you. We're going to the Hayward Gallery in the Black Fantastic. Yeah, this is far in the future so far that we don't have that many details, but it was something I wanted to highlight because the curator... Echo Eschen, I've worked with before. We did an exhibition with him called An Infinity of Traces last year, I think it was. Really. Now, there's a man who knows how to fill out a merino wool sweater very well. Does he? Yeah, okay. man, he looks good. Okay, well, I think the show will 
be good as well because the idea he did a really interesting program about Afrofuturism on the BBC mm. these kind of archival clips cut together and I suppose the crux of In the Black Fantastic is the idea that fantasy or these kind of science fiction folklore myth are black subjects as well as white subjects or as well as you know sort of European subjects and I suppose he's picking up on this idea of Afrofuturism as being some sort of idea of being at play or being something that references history but is also not stuck in the past. It's not, you know, there's a kind of a fantasy element to it. And it comes from a scholar, Rosemary Jackson's definition, the black fantastic, of the genre which being sort of inseparable from social and cultural contexts. So that fantasy is part of the warp and weft of society it's not Mm. you know it kind of helps bind these things together so it shouldn't be viewed as something other although obviously in this case you know that there is that sense of it and is he is this is this a sort of multimedia because i'm kind of feeling like sunra's orchestra and i'm feeling like you know alice coltrane i'm feeling i'm feeling like that to me is very much kind of like that mystical fantasy kind of you might sort of say you know what i mean could have been the preserve of the proggy white sort of musician yeah for sure and that was part of that tv program he made that was that that was that feel of those kind of artists but we have in this show artists such as ellen gallagher hugh Locke, wangechi mutu uh, rashad newsom chris afili and kara walker so there there's some names you'll know some Mm. you don't but i I think although i don't know the reference to this rosemary jackson it brings to mind these kind of like um other types of science fiction writing by octavia butler or and jn jemison but the idea that there is this kind of area of folklore, myth, spiritual tradition that hasn't been particularly visible. So, uh, but it'll be contemporary. I don't think he's look. He's not looking back necessarily. But I'm sort of making it up as I go along because I don't know yet. It's now, like this. Uh, we from... did on this other thing. I was talking to you about um, before we switched on the microphones. Austin. We interviewed um, Michael Armitage. And he was talking about how, you know, East Africa, even just East African art for the last 50 years gets all lumped together in African modernism. And it's just like, and he's like, look, there's loads of loads of genres. There's loads of little funny side bits in this and that and snobberies and kind of high flute and stuff and popular stuff and figurative stuff and abstract stuff and all the rest of it. But it's all lumped together because no one in the West, as it were, kind of cares for it enough or knows enough about it. This feels like the kind of a similar sort of idea to draw out the subtleties and the different stripes and strings in something that's obviously as subtle as anything else, but has never been regarded as such, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's almost like a whole other strand of work that's going on that's not the the normal narrative Mm. or that there is this kind of fantastical strain of art that isn't being looked at, perhaps, or goes alongside or is actually part of very much part of what's going on historically and contemporaneously what's happening at the moment so that's yeah the Hayward and there'll you know be new works as well as existing works on on display that'd be cool that's uh, from the 28th of June to the 18th of September that'd be a summer blockbuster absolutely yeah we hope go on Ralph do it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that was In the Black Fantastic, curated by Echo Eschen, and that is at the Hayward in the middle of the summer. As we said, 
That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks both very much indeed. We've got a reading. We've been all over the place. Let's recap what you should have on your radar over the next few months. Books-wise, we discuss All the Living and the Dead by Hayley Campbell, About a Son by David Whitehouse, and Either Or by Elif Batchman. And the exhibitions we discussed were The Venice Biennale, Steve McQueen at Hangar Bicocha, and In the Black Fantastic, curated by Echo Eschen at the Hayward there. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, and our sound engineer is Steph Chungu. And we'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.